He said, we need you because you're black, and since we have to hire a minority, we might as well try to get a good one. And that's something that he probably shouldn't have told me. Welcome to A Congruent Life, where we share inspirational stories of authenticity and happiness. A Congruent Life is an interview project sharing the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, discovering their passions, and living authentic, amazing lives. Here's your host, Andy Gray. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for episode 31 of A Congruent Life. I'm Andy Gray, and thanks so much for being here today. A Congruent Life is an interview project that explores themes of authenticity, particularly those where people hit some sort of critical junction in their lives, perhaps through self-realization or some sort of internal or external crisis, and then have the wherewithal to reinvent and live their lives in a way that is more congruent for them. Today, we're hearing stories from Sylvester Neal, Sylvester has lived a very interesting life and shares stories of attending an integrated high school during the 1950s, seeing his college dreams literally go up in smoke, finding blessings in disguise, dealing with prejudice during his career, and committing to a life of service. I'm talking today to Sylvester Neal, who is the past president of Kiwanis International and spent a life in fire service. Sylvester, welcome to A Concurrent Life. Well, thank you, Andy. I'm happy to be a part of it. Let's maybe start, Sylvester, just with a quick introduction. Can you introduce yourself to our audience? Well, I'm Sylvester Neal. I've got a family of two boys. Right now, I'm raising two grandsons, and I live in Auburn, Washington. I was born and raised in Texas and spent most of my working life in Alaska. And uh, I returned down to Auburn, Washington uh, in 2000, and I've been here since then. Let's maybe talk a little bit about your your upbringing, because it sounds like it was uh, fairly significant to the course of your life. Well, you know my story of how a barefooted, cotton-picking country boy <laughs> uh, can grow up and into a life of public safety. I went on to be a fire chief uh, at an international airport and the state fire marshal and and on to be the president of a global service organization called Kiwanis of about 600,000 members. And I guess the real first thing, though, is to understand a little bit of where I came from and how I got to where I am now uh, was the impact of my father. There were some really challenging lessons uh, that I learned from my father. I was born in 1943 on a farm in Texas. I had eight siblings. Uh, My dad was a sharecropper. He had a sixth grade education. But you know, he had a master's degree in family, in fatherhood, and in raising a family. And I think he had a PhD in farming. Uh, He really understood how to rotate crops and how to take care of crops and animals. And he had uh, much of the influence on me growing up as a child. My mother was probably the spiritual leader in the home, and she drug us to every uh, meeting that the church had at that time. I also was part of a very gifted singing family. Uh, We had a family gospel group. We toured Texas singing mostly in rural country churches. Three of my five brothers went on to be ministers in the gospel. 
but my farm experience really laid a foundation uh, for me and for my character and I guess for a lot of my beliefs that I have today. So you went to high school during the 50s, which was a pretty tumultuous time, I imagine. What was that like to go to high school in an integrated kind of way? I moved from the farm to the city uh, when I was 13 years old. I was in the seventh grade, and I went to an all-black junior high school. And upon graduation, I uh, decided not to go to the all-black school, number one, because I played fullback at junior high, and I sat on the bench for two years behind a very gifted running back who played my same position. And I knew if I went to the all-black high school, I'd spend four more years on the bench. So a group of us decided to go across town to the recently integrated Austin High School. And um, I uh, got on the football team, and I uh, actually had a pretty good career playing football in high school. I made the honor roll. Uh, I never got into any fights. I had a couple of skirmishes, but I never got into any kind of fights, and I think it's because of the training my dad brought us up with. We, he taught us that we were as good as anybody else, and particularly if you are a black man, you not only have to be good, but you have to be better. And so growing up in my family experience, you know that saying that it takes a village to raise a child? Well, that was more than just a slang or a slogan where I, where I grew up. It was a way of life, and I came up with a lot of discipline, and I used that throughout my uh, experiences in some potentially uh, sensitive race situations. <laughs> I learned how to uh, turn the other cheek, and I learned how to have self-restraint and self-control, and I had a lot of self-confidence in myself. Uh, because of that upbringing, and um, I've never had a fight in my life. I, I've always felt that I was either smarter or would not stoop myself to that level. And uh, at age 70 now, I've never had the experience of hitting someone with my fists. I've always thought I was smarter than other folks. I could talk my way out of it. In some cases, I could outrun the people <laughs> that I had a problem with. But my experience in, in high school was uh, pretty non-eventful. I expected more turbulence, and I expected some more incidents. I, I recall we were traveling on a bus to Waco to play a team from Austin High School. It was in Austin, and we uh, were not allowed to eat with the rest of the players at the restaurant we stopped at along the highway. And uh, the first thing that impressed me with the coach is that he packed everybody else and we went to another place where we all were allowed to go in. And I had a lot of respect. Uh, that really was a, kind of a revolutionary experience for me to be treated that way by the team and by the coach. Uh, but it, otherwise, it was pretty uneventful. I did expect to hopefully get a scholarship, play football. My parents could not afford to send me to college. And I knew if I were to get to college that I would have to get a scholarship, and football was my ticket to college. Well, at the uh, state championship game, we played at the Memorial Stadium there at the University of Texas, uh, a big crowd. I had won all district positions, uh, particularly as a linebacker. Uh, but in that game, I played the worst game that I've ever played. 
the scouts were there, and uh, I guess the guy, the flanker that I was trying to cover, caught about 10 passes that day, and and I was just devastated. There were no calls from anybody to, to get to college. Wow. So how did you how did you deal with that situation of that that kind of disappointment, knowing that your skill was better than what you were showing, but it turned out that it, it didn't sort of open the door that you thought it might? I had been a short order cook uh, most of my life, part time, working my way through high school and during the summertime. And uh, after I didn't get the scholarship, I felt that my profession would be something in cooking. But that was an incident that happened on my way home from school as a senior. School was almost out, and I came home to find my house on fire. I was really devastated. All of my stuff, my hopes and dreams, uh, my possessions were going up in smoke, and all I was left with were the clothes that were on my back. But during that experience, as I looked at these firefighters trying to put the fire out in my house, I thought they were slow, I thought they were old, and I felt that they were not working hard enough trying to save some of my stuff. And I had a dream. I said, I'm going to be a firefighter one day. Uh, I saw myself with a big Superman on my chest that I could be someone racing through burning buildings trying to save children. I was very athletic. I thought I was a pretty tough stud back in those days and that I would save lives and protect property and that what was happening to me, I did not want that to happen to anybody else. And I think that when a spirit of uh, service, uh, that flame of spirit of serving and trying to do for others, uh, I felt that implanted and maybe brewing someplace inside me that I would really act on later in my life. Uh, I didn't act on that dream right at the moment, but two years later, in 1965, I graduated in 1962, uh, there was an opening in the Austin Fire Department, and I joined the Fire Department. That was another pretty drastic change in my career. After I joined the Fire Department, though, Uncle Sam came knocking at my door, and I got drafted in the military. In 1968, most of the people were going straight to Vietnam. It just so happened that because I was a firefighter, they had a critical MOS or job description for trained, and they wanted a trained firefighter, and I got sent to Alaska. Uh, Nine out of ten people that were coming out of basic training were either going straight to Vietnam or to advanced training, and I had an opportunity to go to Alaska and uh, serve in the military fire department, and that started my firefighting career. After the military service, well, you know, things happen, I believe, for a reason. One of the first fires that I went to on the military base in the Army Fire Department, we put the fire out, and as we were leaving the building, I'm just an E2, right out of basic training, and new to the department, but I told the fire chief, I think there's still fire in this building. And I went to a wall and I said, I think there's still fire behind that wall. Well, there's one thing that any firefighter, a fire commander does not want, and that's a rekindle. When you think you put the fire out and you go back to the station and you get a call to go back to the fire, that's a very embarrassing situation. So he took me in my word and we cut that wall open. And there was indeed a smoldering fire still in the wall. It turned out that Uh, I went from an E2 
to a Sergeant E5. I was put in charge of commander on one of the vehicles, and I ended up in training, and it really uh, set my career in the military fire department off to a very good start because I guess I'd shown, I knew that I knew my stuff and uh, it, it the confidence that I showed and the professionalism, uh, the people took it to heart and it really enhanced my firefighting career. After I finished my tour of duty, I started applying for firefighting jobs in Alaska. Well, the city of Fairbanks had just been under a decree on a suit that was brought by two females for discrimination in the hiring practices. And so they met with me and told me that I could come to work the next day after I got out of service. Uh, they'd heard about my experience in the military fire department. I had got to know a couple of the local firefighters, but he wanted me to come to work. No tests, no prerequisite, just come to work. And I didn't have to do any of the preliminary or screening things. Uh, probably one of the most hardest decisions that I've made in my life was to just say no. He said, we need you because you're black. And since we have to hire a minority, we might as well try to get a good one. And that's something that he probably shouldn't have told me. Again, the background that my father had brought me up in is that you don't get something for nothing. I knew I was capable. I asked to take the test, go through all of the screening, and they said, nope, you don't have to do that. Well, in emergency work and in the military, you learn that your comrades that you go to battle with, and when you go into a foreign emergency, you have to know that the people that you're with have your back. And I did not want to take that job with the other firefighters thinking that I got it only because I was black. I knew I could meet the requirements. I knew I could pass the test. And uh, they wouldn't, they didn't allow me to do that. So I told them no. Now that didn't set too well with some of my colleagues, particularly African American colleagues, who felt that the world owed them something. But again, uh, I take it back to my spiritual upbringing, uh, the values that my dad taught and my family had taught me that. Uh, you need to get things the old-fashioned way. You earn it. And uh, the next day, I got a call from the airport. They're just outside of town, and it was an airport fire and security department. They asked me to come to work. They didn't tell me that they were hiring me because I was black. That may have been the reason, but that's not the reason that they told me. And so I'd end up taking that job in 1970 when I got out. And by 1979, I worked my way up to be the fire chief of the department. I just believe that uh, hard work and trying hard and applying yourself uh, will get results. And I did not want any special treatment. When you know that you can do something and do it as well as someone else, that's just been a principle with me. In the military, on weekends and days off, all the other firefighters would go downtown and party, and I was not really into that too much. I stayed on my bunk bed. I got out the journals, and I was studying fire behavior, the principles of fire, backdrafts, salvage and overhaul. <laughs> I was studying fire tactics. I really have always tried to apply myself. Again, one of the lessons my father taught me is that if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing right. And that just really has always stuck with me. And I learned that because when I did something wrong, my butt felt the heat. Uh, and you do that a couple of times. And whenever you do something, you'll learn to do it right and the best you can every time. So, And, you know, as I look back, I believe things happen for a reason in life. 
some people call it luck. Some people call it being in the right place at the right time. But I look back and I say, because my house burned up, I was so devastated, lost everything I had, didn't get a scholarship, didn't know what I was going to do with my life. But that fire, that experience of my house burning up, led me to a profession in firefighting where, again, I went on to be the fire chief. And at the fire department, I had an opportunity to go back to school. Thanks to the GI Bill, I went on and went back to school and graduated in 1983. It took me 10 years of going part-time, raising a family. But again, I knew if I was going to progress in that career, I had to be as good or better than the next person. And I just really tried to apply myself. I graduated uh, magnum cum laude with a 3.7 grade point average. And again, I don't think I'm very smart, but it's applying yourself. And every test I took, I tried to do the best that I could. I, I wanted to come out number one on every test. Uh, and I've always been very competitive in sports, and I think that's been another part of my life, uh, the competitiveness I have and, and uh, trying to be number one. People don't always remember who number two is, but trying to be number one. But again, the house burning down, leading to a career in firefighting, leading me to the opportunity to be the chief of a department of fire and security. And that led me to an education that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten if I hadn't went into the military. Uh, and that led me to an appointment to the state for marshal's job. I was very happy at the airport. Uh, I, I worked hard and I'd gotten that department where it was just about running itself my supervisors and the airport manager and uh, the state people in the Department of Transportation was very happy with my work there. And I think I caught the eye of somebody in the state government. They called on me and asked me if I wanted to be the state fire marshal. Well, I did not want that job. It was a political job. I was secure. I was looking forward to retiring. And uh I sat down in an interview with the commissioner who I had known there at the airport. He was the chief of police in the city fire department, and he tried to talk me into taking this job. I went there to the interview because some people say, hey, the job is yours. You just go talk to this guy. They want you, and you just need to go talk to him. And uh, so I did that. Uh, with all indications of saying, no, I'm happy where I am. I got eight more years before I need to retire. But he told me that the Department of Fire Prevention in the Public Safety Department was in trouble, that the reputation was being reflecting on the whole Department of Public Safety, and even the governor was not very pleased with uh, some of the performance in that department. And he told me I need someone to turn this department around. Well, I haven't always veered from a challenge but that was too much of a challenge for me i, I didn't <laughs> i didn't need that <laughs> i was happy where i was but he told me he said you know i've talked to a lot of people uh, i believe that you are the only man that can turn this department around and he said because you are a man of integrity now that was the highest compliment i think i've ever gotten and it just kind of floorboarded me there for a moment. Uh, for someone to think that maybe because of my performance, how I carried myself, that I could be thought of as a man of integrity in a profession of security, police, and firefighting, that uh, 
I was a challenge that I just couldn't resist then at that moment. <laughs> so I went on and accepted the job. I had to relocate from Fairbanks to Anchorage. And now that job is probably one of the most challenging jobs that I've ever had in my life. I learned about uh, leadership. Uh, I, it was a training ground for my character development. Uh, there were three deputy fire marshals who thought they were going to get the job in the three regional offices. And for me to come in, number one, as a black man, for me to be the first person, number two, from outside the department, coming into that department to be the director, uh, I had two strikes against me to begin with. They didn't expect me to last six months. And I'm not going to get into all of the situations there, but I can tell you from Cutting the shrubbery in my yard one morning when I woke up, tires slashed on my car to a cross burning the grass in my front yard. Uh, a lot of ombudsman complaints. They were bound and determined that this, and I'm not going to say the term, the N word that they used, we're going to make him resign and make him quit. That job and those challenges changed my prayer life. And it really developed uh, some leadership skills that I did not know I had. But the real key to that, without getting into a lot of the details, is that I had a very strong support from the guy that hired me, from the commissioner, and from the governor. People who tried to go around me, the complaints they were making to the commissioner, and some directly to the governor, they both would redirect those people. Well, you've got to go back through and take this up with Sylvester. Now, that's the most powerful uh, support uh, that you can get as a leader, to have your people above you have the confidence, and when they delegate something to you, leave you there with that responsibility. So I was bold enough <laughs> because I had that support to do the kinds of things that I needed to do as a leader to turn that department around. And after three years, I think I really developed, I was there eight years. It took me about three years to really develop that department into a really effective team. And uh, one of my colleagues said at the time, he said, man, the very people who were trying to destroy your life, he said, you had them eaten out of your hands. And one of the things that helped me is that I had my hands in the hands of the man. And that's with a capital M, uh, through prayer, and through diligence and having the stick to to stick to my principles. I didn't stray from my values and my principles. And once my team understood that, they said, hey, we, we got to work with this guy, you know. <laughs> and so I went on to have a pretty successful career, but I learned a lot of life lessons. And I go right back to my upbringing, some of the challenges that I had playing football, uh, some of the challenges that I had as the fire chief was nothing in compared to the challenges that I had as a state fire marshal. And I, I went on to be the president of Kiwanis International. And as I look back, I think a lot of the things that I went through were preparing me for what I feel was my destiny. And that was a life purpose of service. When I was the chief at the airport, the airport manager, my boss, was in the local uh, Anchorage Kiwana, Fairbanks Kiwanis Club. 
he came down to the station about noon one day and said, let's go have lunch. I went with him. He took me to a Kiwanis meeting. I didn't know what Kiwanis was. I'd never heard of it. Had never thought about being in a service organization. Uh, but after a couple of meetings, I ended up joining. And I, I'll tell you truthfully, it wasn't for the altruistic service of wanting to serve others. That's what this organization does. I mean, I joined for business <laughs> business reasons. When your boss asks you to join an organization, I thought it was better that I say yes than say no. Uh, so I, I went on to join Kiwanis, and, and that has been one of the best things that has ever happened to me. Uh, one of the first service projects that I went to, we were delivering food to uh, a very needy family, uh, things that Kiwanians do. And uh, this lady was so appreciative of getting this basket of food. Uh, she invited myself and the other Kiwanian in, and she prayed for us. She said, my family was hungry. We walked into this. It's about 40 below zero the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, we walked into this little mobile home. There were six kids laying on the floor in sleeping bags. Uh, the house was not quite warm enough to really keep them warm. And we took her this food. And this lady was so appreciative. Uh, she called us in and asked if she could pray for us. Uh, we held hands, myself and this lady, and this lady prayed on and on. And I opened my eyes and started looking around the apartment, and I, I couldn't figure out why this lady was so thankful when she had so little. And uh, I began to look at my own life and found out how really blessed I was. And when she called us angels, she said, I want to thank these Kiwanis angels who brought us food. And I felt a little twinge in my shoulders. And I thought I felt some wings trying to sprout out from my shoulders. I'd never been called an angel. And I looked at myself, how blessed I was. And uh, I really found out what service meant. Giving to others and realizing how blessed I was and how appreciative this lady was. She helped me changed my whole prayer life also and uh, I, I just had a different understanding so I went on to love this Kiwanis organization and uh, they deal with children I've always had a, a an infinity to work with children and particularly young African-American males um, I've learned to try to be an example and now I have an opportunity to try to give back but Kiwanis has provided me with that opportunity I didn't think I'd go much further in my Kiwanis career. I'd been a lieutenant governor and I'd been a club president and a regional leader. But in 2000, I fainted and it went on to find out my wife and friends insisted that I go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. They checked me out. They sent me to a cardiologist. He put me on the treadmill and the next day I had a quadruple bypass operation. During my recovery, uh, my doctor told me that most people that fainted and went down like I did, I had 85% blockage in one of my main arteries. 
he said they would not have gotten up again. And now my name is Sylvester. And uh, Sylvester the cat, I got to thinking about it. I said, wow, he had nine lives. Somehow God has given me another one. He just didn't understand how I recovered and made my recovery so well. And as I was laying there on my hospital bed meditating and being thankful, I got a real revelation of I've had a family history of heart problems. All five of my brothers died of heart attacks. Only one lived older than age 55. And I said, Lord, why have you kept me here? My answer was, I want you to serve. And I decided then that I would take up leadership roles in Kiwanis. And that's how I went on to be the Kiwanis International President. And a real calling I felt on my life that I had been so blessed uh, that it was time for me to try to give back to others. And uh, my career as a president of Kiwanis International, I've got to go lots of places, meet lots of people, see so many dedicated, committed people all over the world. Uh, we're in over 79, 80 countries, giving of their time and of their talents, uh, trying to make this a better world and trying to really impact children. And that's uh, what I still do and what I enjoy doing and uh, serving others as uh, I think that's why I'm still here. And that's what I try to do now. Wow, so much richness there. There's all kinds of stories, which is exactly the purpose of this show. You know, the reason for A Congruent Life is really to share these kinds of stories of authenticity and people living lives of service in a way that is congruent to them. So what does what does living authentically or congruently mean to you? You know, the, the things that I learned, particularly in the position of uh, international president, uh, I didn't realize that just a lot of politics and a lot of other things going on beyond that altruistic uh, goal of service. There's a poem, I think, that kind of defines my attempts to try to lead a congruent life and a life of authenticity. And uh, it was given to me uh, when I worked for the uh, newspaper. Uh, someone brought me in this poem. It was already framed. And uh, I'm not quite sure they brought it, why they brought it to me. I don't remember the conversation, but it was called A Man in the Mirror. I kept that poem right in front of me. And matter of fact, right now, in front of my home office here, it's right on the wall. And uh, I, I don't know if we have the time to read it, but the gist of it is, no matter what other people say about you, no matter what other uh, things that go on in your life, you have got to look at that person in the mirror every morning you get up. And if you're not happy with that person, then you've cheated life and you've cheated yourself. And so uh, it's been like kind of mind over matter. A lot of things don't mind and a lot of people don't matter. And I don't try to do things for other folks. I've got to satisfy and live with myself. And that's been my, uh, that poem has been a, a lot to me. And I refer to it a lot of times when I'm kind of, I get a little down and out. I've got to be able to look at that person in the mirror and be happy with that person and be able to smile at that person and know that I'm satisfied within myself uh, that I've tried to be the person that I've tried to be. One of the things that drew me to Kiwanis was the first object of Kiwanis says that this is an organization that gives primacy 
to the human and spiritual rather than the material things of life. And they talked all of this stuff, trying to talk me into being a Kiwanian, doing my orientation. But when they got to that part, I said, wow, this is the organization for me. Their values coincide with my values. Uh, the thing that moving to Alaska did for me as a black man from the neighborhood that I came from in the Austin, <laughs> it liberated me from the materialistic neighborhood that I came from. Back home, I mean, people had to have a fine car. They watched what you wear, how you dress, and uh, some people's cars were bigger than the house. Uh, it was a kind of a showman, materialistic kind of thing, and that never resonated with me very well. When I got to Alaska, I could really live out that non-materialistic uh, aspect of my life. And I could go to church in blue jeans. I couldn't do that in Texas. I mean, people wasn't concerned about <laughs> what you wore or what your position were. I just got treated like a person. So that was very liberating. I remember the first time that I went back home to visit family in my old neighborhood. One of the first questions one of the guys asked me, hey, you're up there making a bunch of money in Alaska now. What kind of car do you drive? I said, I drive a Volkswagen Bug. I mean, they just <laughs> it just kind of blew their mind. And so uh, when I when Kiwanis says they focus on the human and the spiritual rather than material things of life, that was really resonated deep in my soul that this was uh, the kind of organization that I wanted to belong to. And I have given up. Well, I won't say given up, but I've had other opportunities before I took a leadership role in Kiwanis, when I left the state service, uh, I had an opportunity and a job offer to go to work, uh, making quite a bit more money. And uh, after my hard operation, after I told my wife, well, let's move from Alaska, I've got to relocate to Washington so I can take the job of governor of this whole Kiwanis division uh, so I can better serve I'm so blessed to have a wife like I have. But when I got this job offer for a lot more money, just as I was getting into Kiwanis higher leadership, uh, I thought it was going to be a divorce. But uh, I said, no, I cannot take that job. I said, I made a commitment in that hospital bed that I was going to serve. And uh, God doesn't give me, didn't promise me everything that I wanted. But I, it's just my belief that he'll supply everything that I need. And I, I don't need a whole lot of things. I've got family. I've got my church. I've got Kiwanis. I don't need a whole lot of stuff. I, am, I can look at that man in the mirror. I can be happy with myself. Uh, and it's my, I feel it's just my job to give to other folks. And particularly the children are such a part of our future. They are our future. Just this week, I had an opportunity with Kiwanis to go out with some adults with disabilities. I volunteer with some adults who are trying to do service and they are, are have disabilities. Uh, I was at the middle school yesterday with some students. I work in the high schools, particularly for African-American young men who dropping out of school, who are going to prison, who are getting in gangs. I, I, in Alaska, I put on a couple of workshops, statewide workshops. Uh, I got a grant to help put on a couple of workshops for troubled youth. And um, it's just, that's what 
concerns me right now is trying to be an example, uh, trying to help other youth. Some of the very things that I've learned from primarily the Bible study and the spiritual training that I had uh, is trying to give back and show some direction and be an example for the young men. Best example I have of that right now is raising two grand boys. My son and his wife split up and my wife and I found in 2009 that we were the new parents of a three and a five-year-old boys, very active boys. And we, instead of sending them to adoption, uh, we've taken them in. Now that has been uh, my greatest challenge here. At my age, I said, these guys are going to keep me in good shape or they're going to kill me. I don't know which one, but my challenge right now and my purpose with them is to show them what a father figure is. Uh, and I, it has enhanced my relationship with my wife. We've been married 43 years, and these boys have brought new life to both of us. Uh, at first, I thought it was just a, why me? I thought it was a tragedy. Just a, I, I, I knew I had to do it, but I wasn't so willing to do it. Uh, but I found out that it's been a blessing. And I think God said, well, you messed up with your other kids. and I'm going to give you a second chance. I don't know. But I've got a second chance, uh, not only at life itself, but to try to be a uh, father figure and raise two young boys that they can be, hopefully, men of integrity. That would be the highest calling that I think I could, contribution that I can make to them uh, is have them to be successful men and me being exampled uh, for them now as their grandpa father. How can our listeners engage with you, Sylvester? I have an opportunity, particularly with my Kiwanis uh, and other involvements in the community. Uh, I, I have an opportunity to uh, talk with children and youth and kids. And I have an email. I'm on Facebook. Uh, check me out on Facebook. I, I, I think my web page might still be up. When I was president, I had a web page and uh, to make myself accessible and available to Kiwanians all over the world. I've just developed some outstanding friendships for life uh, with other people, like-minded people who are concerned and want to try to make a difference and uh, feel that responsibility that uh, we can. One child, one community at a time uh, we can still make a difference. And uh, the thing that really, that really touches me is when I see a young student that I worked with or had an interaction with, to see them grow up, and some of them have contacted me on Facebook. Students that I worked in the high schools with in, in Anchorage back in the uh, early, late 80s, early 90s, they have found me on Facebook and they've said, are you the Sylvester Neal that was in Alaska over at Diamond High School? And to find out that these people are successful business people, uh, maybe somehow, some way, my little interactions with them, hopefully my words of encouragement, of just being there in support uh, may have had an impact. And I've had some letters and some really heartwarming experiences. And I, that's... Uh, if I have one gift, uh, talent or gifts, or I think one of the gifts that I might have is that of an, I'm an encourager. I love 
to compliment people, encourage people, respond to people, and tell them that they do a good job. Uh, that was one of the the most uh, time-consuming things I did as a Qantas International President is that I would read newsletters and people would send me information. I'd find somebody doing something uh, outstanding, uh, just ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I had a little pen called a Light Your Fire pen. I'd send them a pen. I'd sit down and send them a little card or I would get on uh, email and send them a little note just saying thanks. And when people know that they're appreciated, just treating people with dignity and respect, uh, treating people, we have to go beyond the golden rule. The golden rule said treat other people like they want to be treated, like you want to be treated. Treat other people like you want to be treated. Well, I've tried to go to a platinum rule, which is much more difficult, but it is worth the while when you can treat people like they want to be treated. That's very difficult and it's challenging sometimes, but that's what I try to do. People, uh, I love encouraging people, making people smile, making people happy. You know, I'll be in a grocery line and uh, I give the lady my money and she doesn't say thank. If she doesn't say thank, you know, uh, I'll smile at her and I say, you're welcome. And the next time I go in there, they look at me and smile. Thank you, Mr. Neal. Thank you. Uh, I just uh, look for the positive, and uh, it's that man in the mirror, I guess. Uh, no matter what other people say, I'm happy with myself. Uh, I, I, I know where I stand. It's, I've had a lot of people that have helped inspired me along the way, and I just want to help and inspire some other folks uh, in their lives. So. Well, Sylvester Neal, your example of service, your life of service is indeed inspiring. Thank you very much for sharing this time with us and sharing so many of your stories. Okay. Thank you, Andy, for the opportunity. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I love what you're doing uh, with your audience. And, and I'm going to tune in and join in and, and keep in touch. That's fantastic. Thank you. All right. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Sylvester Neal. Since this is episode 31, you can find the webpage for this episode at acongruentlife.net slash 31 or acongruentlife.net slash Neal, which is N-E-A-L. Acongruent Life is supported by Black Creator Software Solutions. If you need technology solutions for your small business or nonprofit organization, please check out blackcreator.com. Once again, thanks for listening to Acongruent Life. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to A Congruent Life. For more, please visit us on the web at acongruentlife.net. Do you have feedback about the show or suggestions for future guests? Please contact us through the website or send an email to feedback at acongruentlife.net. See you next time.